Good afternoon, listeners, and welcome to Unfiltered, the podcast show where we call it as we see it. I'm your host, Nikisha Prince-Hens, and today my guest is Mr. George Spencer Griffith. But before Mr. Griffith begins, let me tell you a little about him. George Spencer Griffith, CBE, SCM, JP, MS, was a student nurse at Assistant Nurse in 1968, staff nurse at the psychiatric hospital from 1971 to 1972, youth and community development officer from 1972 to 1978, welfare officer at government industrial school from 1978 to 1984, assistant director at national assistant board from 1984 to 1986, executive assistant for leader of the opposition from 1986 to 1989. He was also part-time instructor at Customer Relations from 1989 to 1990. Project manager at Richmond Fellowship of the Caribbean for Community Mental Health from 1990 to 1992. Assistant Executive Director at Barbados Family Planning Association from 1992 to 1995. The Council General for Barbados to New York from 1999 to 2003. He's Executive Director of Barbados Family Planning Association from 2004 to 2015. Mr. Griffith holds MSc in Management, International Public Service from New York University, a BSc in Social Work from the University of the West Indies, Mona, Certificate in Social Work from the University of the West Indies, Mona. Certificate in Principles and Practice of Social Work from the University of the West Indies. Registered Mental Nurse from General Nursing for Mona. Certificate in HIV Pre and Post Test Counseling from New York from the State Department of Health AIDS Institute. Certificate in AIDS, Human Sexuality and Program Planning from the Margaret Sanger Center International, New York. Mr. George Spencer Griffith was appointed to the Order of Barbados in the grade of Silver Crown of Merit in 1996 and received Commander of the Most Excellent Order of the British Empire in 2020. He was also appointed to the Senate of Barbados in 1999 and was Council General for Barbados to New York from September 1999 to 2003. Mr. Griffith is a licensed lay reader at St. Catherine's Anglican Church, was a minister from 1970 to present, chairman of Family Life Commission and Anglican Diocese from 2018 to present, president of National Men's Health Association of Barbados from 2008 to present, and coordinator at the National Assistant Board for the Elderly Care Program. Good afternoon, Mr. Spencer, and welcome to Unfiltered. How are you today? I'm alive and well and happy to be part of your program this evening. Great. So let's get straight into your interview. How did you get started in your most recent career? Because I know you hold many hats. How did you get started in your most recent career? I suspect that people who uh, know me well did not want me to have a peaceful retirement. <laughs> and they invited me to get back into the 
uh, string of things um, just as I was beginning to enjoy my gardening and all the other music and relaxation and so on. So I've been called to do something, a piece of work that I think is very important and it has taken very good shape so far. Nice. So how did you made it amidst all of the challenges you faced? Because, you know, we all face challenges in life. So how did you make it amidst all of the challenges with, you know, everyone encouraging you to get back into the game and not to have a peaceful <laughs> retirement and do gardening? Well, I've always, um, I pride myself on being a uh, social development advocate and consultant and therefore I write many letters to the newspaper I write articles which some they use some as, as columns I use every opportunity uh, through social media and wherever I um, have the opportunity I speak about things as I see them and think of, think of um, speak about what can be done more effectively and efficiently and I believe that in this regard, people felt that this new initiative was always going to be very challenging. And the feeling was that I should put my money where my mouth is and therefore accepted the challenge. Nice. So Mr. Griffith, how does it feel, or rather, how did it feel to be appointed to the Order of Barbados in the grade of Silver Crown of Merit? Tell us about that feeling. Yeah, that was in 1996. And I really did not expect anything like that because you know when you're committed to your work, you just work. And I've always said uh, that work does not feel like work to me. In fact, in all of the um, more than 53 years that I've been working, I have never had an uncertified sick day. And wow. even when I had uh, certified sick days, I have always been back to work uh, before the scheduled time, even with respect to my annual vacations. After two weeks, I am very bored and I'm looking for something to do. And therefore, wow. um, when that came, it came as a shock to me because I did not recognize that people were observing what I was doing or that people were appreciating what I was doing. I was um, a youth and community development officer, and I was assigned to one of the, well, I, one of the more depressed areas in Barbados at the time, that was the pain. And um, I was able to get the young people in the area and those not so young to come together in order to uh, address some of the problems confronting the community. I remember at the time um, getting uh, attached to people from both sides of the political divide in Barbados and getting them to agree that we should do much more for the young people in the area. And I went out house to house, knocking on doors with a survey to find out what it was that people really wanted. How did they feel about their community? How did they feel about the opportunities that were available to young people at the time and to old people as well? And we came up with a formula that worked very well. And there are some people who meet me now and 
you know, speak about what it meant to them at the time to have somebody really truly sitting down with them and listening to their issues and helping them to come up with solutions at the time. And I'm talking now about the um, early 70s. That's a long time. My mother didn't even dream about making me. <laughs> I trust you with practicing, though. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe she had it in thought. <laughs> I still my bad behavior. <laughs> so, Mr. Griffith, what's one thing you wish you had known before you began your career, before you began going house to house and you know, starting the survey, what's one thing you wish you had known before? You know, I've heard people say over the time that, that youth is wasted on the young. And sometimes I feel that if I had the information uh, now and the skills then that I, that, that I have now, I would be a better social worker. I would be better for the people. I would have had better results and so on. But, you know, they say you grow and you develop and you uh, you gain some level of maturity and experience. And just as you think that you have the hang of it, it is time to return. Mm-hmm. So I wish I had all that information up front as opposed to having it at the end. Whoa. So, Mr. Griffith, I'm going to ask you an important question because... I know earlier you said to me that you was prepared for a lecture tomorrow. Yes. How do you balance your work life and your personal life? Well, to be honest with you, I think they're very well integrated. Because, for instance, I came home from work uh, knowing that I have to give this two-hour presentation tomorrow. And I had uh, in my mind these kind of points that I have to make. And I will now sit myself down right after a cup of coffee and a shower. I will then sit myself down and put the information together. And I am not going to go to bed until it is finished. And I always use index cards. So I would do all the writing, all the, do all the research and all the information. And then I would list them um, in numerical order. Um, I always like to make a very arresting statement, something that may cause people to sit up and look around. And once I get that opening paragraph, it simply flows very smoothly. Sometimes I can sit for an hour or two just thinking and putting down books on the shelf and reading around and wondering, well, how should I open this? and is it going to be effective? And unless I am satisfied, I am not going to start to write. But once I get that opening paragraph, those first three or four lines, it flows like a river beyond that. Love it, love it. That shows that you're following your passion. And you know, it's it's amazing because when you follow your passion, you don't feel like you're working. So it's That's more fine. like a hobby. You're doing what you love. But when I tell people that I had an all-nighter, in fact, I just come from my days at Mona when we sometimes had to submit term papers and important papers. Sometimes for three nights you didn't sleep. And then when you turn that paper in, you simply um, went back to your room and stretched it across the bed. 
Now when I have mm. an all-nighter, I feel very invigorated next morning. A nice shower and a good breakfast, and I'm off. And when I have done the job to my satisfaction, I always treat myself. I take, treat myself to a lovely lunch or something like that. And I tell myself, well, you've, you've done well enough, and therefore you deserve a treat. And I treat myself. You know, it's important that you mention that because we try to please everyone else except for ourselves. And, you know, it's very important when you of yourself kind of recognize your hard work and that you can reward yourself. It gives you that zeal and that motivation to, you know, continue pushing forward and pressing on. And, you know, it gives you that motivation as well and inspiration to say that, hey, I don't have to depend on John Jones or X, Y, or Z to reward me or to motivate me in order for me to continue climbing the ladder, in order for me to achieve my goals. Once you can recognize it within yourself, I think that's key to success as well. But I'm, I'm generally very hard on myself though, you know, because sometimes um, when I'm writing something that I consider to be important, my waste paper basket is filled and overflowing because I, wow. would get, I would get happy and I would tear the page up and I would dump it and I would start all over again and it would go on like that until I am satisfied that what I am producing is really worth the people why because these are people who are going to budget time and come and sit down and listen to me or come on Zoom and they expect me to have properly researched information well argued and to stimulate them. In fact, I always say that there is a rule I have. If you do not ask me questions during the course of my presentation, I'm going to ask you questions. Mm. And that's sometimes get them get them open. Nice, I love it. I tried that once. I was doing a presentation and you know, it's a kind of tactic that persons don't realize. And during the presentation Nobody's responding and, you know, the interaction seemed, it wasn't what I was expected. So then I was like, okay, no problem. I'm going to start asking questions. And, you know, when I started to ask questions, everybody was revived and it made the presentation more impactful. And, you know, the comments that came after the presentation, it was worthwhile. And I, you know, that feeling that, whoa, won the jackpot. But very early in your presentation, it is good to look around the room and don't begin with all the hard information up front. Have something fairly like hearted to say and so on. And then look to see who, who in the audience is making eye contact with you or who might be nodding their head and so on and so on. And you can see, you can generally see people who are with you and who are listening and who might have questions or you might say something and you might see some eyebrows raised and then you know that there's a question in the off in there and you can very tactfully, you know, get around the room and get to that person. And I always say, look, I like it when people disagree with me. I like a very robust discussion. And if I don't have that, I always feel that I have not really paid an impact. Mm. Got you. So, Mr. Griffith, what is, what is one of your most exciting or memorable moment to date? Well, there, there have been many, I can tell you. But I've seen um, I in the past I uh, 
um, supervise students for not only the University of West Indies, but York University, and so on, and um, Columbia from time to time, when people came down here to do their masters or to do research and so on. The, the universities from which they came had to find someone who would be able to supervise them and um, you know answer their questions and make sure that they did their work and so forth. I always asked, and I always did. And I found it very rewarding when people come into our cultural space and you're able to help them to understand why we are doing what we're doing. Very often they were very surprised to see the, um, the level, the network sorts of services that we uh, are able to maintain in Barbados and for how long it was going. And some of the people said, even when I was serving abroad and had to meet with the US State Department and so on, some people marvel that we were able to provide a level of, of, of social development assistance to our people that some developed countries could not give to their people. Mm. And that made it very difficult for us sometimes to convince them that we were in fact in need of assistance. So when people came and this, um, observed what we were, we were doing and they felt that they benefited, that made me feel pretty good. And sometimes I come across them. The fact there is one student, he came out of Mona and he called me only recently, a couple of days ago, to say that he was applying a top job in this country and he wanted to know if he could use my name as a reference. You know, those things make you very humble, make you feel very nice. humble. That somebody who is literally going to go further up the socioeconomic and professional ladder than you yourself went, is going to ask you to support his application for that kind of position. And that really was touching. Nice. Who or what motivates you? Well, I am a very, um, I guess I guess I could say, easy going sometimes and very complicated other times. I am very passionate. I have a very strong sense of what is right and what is wrong. Um, and I do not like injustice. I, I, that's why I write columns in the newspaper and so on. And that's why I participate wherever I can. I do not like to see people being disadvantaged. At the same time, I do not like to see people becoming complex and sitting back uh, in this substantial kind of attitude to expect that the, the country must do for them what they can and should do for themselves. So I abhor injustice and especially uh, when I look back on colonialism, which as you know came after slavery and what was done to our parents and grandparents and great grandparents, how they had to work, they, they had to forego their education treated like animals and those things get under my skin and that is why I still speak about my you have threads of that running through my my speeches because I do know that our four parents really suffered and we do not remember that to this day and that is why I guess I am so passionate about the work I'm doing with the senior citizens and vulnerable persons in the society because they're generally so patient and so understanding. And I mean, we can do a lot more for them, but 
we tend to have them on the back burner most times. And unless someone stand up and speak for them, they are going to be forever disadvantaged. Nice. So, Mr. Griffith, I was made aware that you're also a funeral director. How did you get started <laughs> in that <laughs> career? Well, that's a long story. I'm going to have to <laughs> check it very for you. Really and truly, um, in the early days, I was very fascinated by the industry. And my brother was one of those persons who went off to England to do nursing. And then he subsequently went off to Canada. Now, I was good at cricket. I was good at athletics. In fact, I represented Barbados and set a national record in 1967. But I always wanted to do modern environment and cremation. And my, my plan was to go to England to do nursing. I'd done all the qualifications. I was ready to go to do nursing, play league cricket, and then study modern environment and cremation, and then come back to Barbados and establish myself and so on. But after my brother left and he went off to England, my sister went off to Canada. It was just my mother and myself. And I felt that I really could not go off and leave her alone. And I um, allowed that opportunity to pass. And I was a plantation overseer for, for short, at 17 years old for a short while. And then I was selected to represent Barbados and plantation that I worked with did not give me the time off to uh, train. And my mother agreed that I should give up the job and concentrate on my athletics, which I did. And then the father was good at athletics and the police force in those days used to look out for people who were good at sport and uh, invite them to join the Barbados police force. I was asked several times to um, join the police force because of my athletics and fit. And I turned it down every time. I don't know why, but I just turned it down. <laughs> and, and then the rest was history. Then I got into nursing and then into the social work and then into the um, politics and into the all the other things that went with that. But in 1992, my grandmother died at age 86. And Lynnhurst Funeral Home, which is uh, owned and managed by relatives, looked after the arrangements. And I, I guess I showed such keenness that I was asked at the time, well, why not come and, you know, do some work with us? And I willingly went along. So between 1992 and now, I was um, literally involved in the funeral business but my own social work and my work with family planning and those places came first. And the board gave me permission to look after the funerals as well when I had to, but once it did not interfere with the quality of my work, my work in family planning. So it has gone on like that for all of these years and it reached the stairs nowhere. I, because of COVID and so on, I decided that I'm not going to be at up front as I once was. And that, to me, is um, seemed to be only words because only, only last week I was called out at um, Minister Midnight 
when somebody died and so on, I had to get home my bed and didn't get back in until two o'clock in the morning. So I'm still doing some of that work. And then there's some funerals, some high profile and some not so high profile. People insist that they want me to be there and so on. And I will oblige people, but technically speaking, I am semi-retired from the funeral business. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Mr. Griffith. My final question to you. What advice would you give to someone wanting to start a career in social work? All right, well, that is easy because, you know, I've been lecturing on the principles of counseling and social work for almost 30 years. And I would say, first of all, you have to be certain that you want to give of yourself to people and to strangers and to unreasonable people, to be demanding people at all times, because in this business, it is not easy. You will find some clients that are easy to work with, and some because of the stress and the strain that they're under. They've been beaten down so much by the system sometimes, that they have difficulty accepting that someone genuinely wants to be of assistance to them. So you must convince yourself that you are ready for the long haul and you're not going to just Come in and do a bad job. So if you're coming into this business, you have one, understand the fundamental principles of the profession. And you have to tell yourself that you're going to internalize those principles and you're going to live those principles out in your daily life, whether it be in the office, whether it be on the street, whether it be on the telephone, whether it be on social media, once a social worker, always a social worker. So you have to have some empathy for people. You have to have a strong desire to see people better themselves. You cannot um, come in thinking that you are going to be this do-gooder who is going to provide everything that a person needs because, because sometimes there have to be some tough love involved. You have to be able to help them True. to identify the many and varied options available to them and help them to accept that this is the way you are going to get yourself out of whatever difficulties you're in. And sometimes you have to say, well, look, the ball is in your court. This is your decision that you have to make. And whatever decision they make, then once it is within the law, then you have to assist them. You have to be prepared to, to burn the midnight eyes, so, so to speak. You have to be forever learning. You cannot go into the social work school and come up with a degree in social work and then put down the books and allow them to catch cobweb. I have mm. to care from my social work days and I still read them up until this day. There were three fundamental books that we had to study. Gordon Hamilton, um, Flowers Hollis, and Edith uh, Perlman. Those were the, the main books that we studied. They're still relevant today. And then there's Felix Bistek's who deal with the, the casework relationship and those fundamental principles I tell you about. So I will easily reach my hand up in the shelf and pull them on those books if I want to refresh my memory. And then you have to read all of the modern research that comes out. Some research really um, can be useful and others not so useful because sometimes the research, because it comes from foreign cultures, it is cued in a particular way. We are a small community where everybody knows everybody else. And we have to be prepared to accept that even if we read all that research that's coming from the international arena, 
we have to tailor made make those um, that bit of research and those findings to suit our local community because one size does not fit all. Because poverty in Barbados is not the same as poverty in the United States or Canada or India right. or Australia. So you have to be adaptable. You have to accept that you're going to make mistakes and that you are not going to be able to help every client. And therefore you have to be prepared to refer them to some other agency, whether it be a psychologist, a psychiatrist, um, wherever else, therapist for one reason or another, but you must not believe that you can solve every problem that comes before you because a relationship must exist between you and the client and you all have to work you know in partnership but i mean you are the worker you are the helper and it is the client's issue you have to help him to understand his issue so that he will be prepared to make the best possible choices in the circumstances and if he makes that choice and he fails and he comes to you again you must be prepared to work with him all over again you don't ever give up on your clients so that's what I would say yeah. to anyone coming in. There's no better roses. It might look fancy that you have an office and you people will come and knock on your door who are vulnerable and ask your assistance here, there, and everywhere. It is not like that. Your job is to be helpful. You're literally the servant of your client. And that is how I view it over the years. Excellent piece of advice. So, Mr. Griffith, how can our listeners connect with you online? Let me hear that again. How can our listeners connect with you online? If they you know, want social work advice, tutoring, counseling. One of the things, of the things I didn't say just now, that you must know your own limitations. In fact, one of the points I'm going to be making tomorrow um, in this lecture, be careful that you do not bite off more than you can chew. So if I had to say to the listeners, call me if you need this, that, or the other, I might find myself swamped and I might not be able to give uh, a good quality of service to anybody else. So you have to be, especially when you're in a boat like me, you have to be able to pick and choose what you can do and what you can't do and be honest enough to say. Love it. <laughs> you Thank love you. Can I just take myself as an old boat? No, no. I love the fact that you're honest enough to say that I know my limit and I know when I have enough. Enough is enough. And I'm not so going to bite off more than I can chew. Anyone want to put a question to me, they can funnel it through you. Great. Thank you very much, Mr. Griffith. It was indeed a pleasure having you on my show. I wish you nothing but success in all of your future endeavors. Thanks for asking me, and I, I trust I wasn't too difficult. No, you weren't. There you have it, listeners. Don't forget to follow us and to tune in next Wednesday for another episode of Unfiltered. Be true to who you are always and stay motivated.